0: Good morning, church. Good morning to those in the sanctuary, to those online, as well as those at the Midlothian campus. It's good to be here, isn't it? Amen. Amen. Uh, for those of you, uh, the last time I preached at the morning service, I was, for those of you who know me, first of all, I'm not Randy. For those of you who may not know, I'm not Randy. My name is uh, Rico Patterson. I'm one of the associate pastors here at the church. And the last time I preached in the morning service, I lost my mic those of you who know me, I get in the zone sometimes, and I lost my mic, and I, I didn't realize it, so I preached for about five or ten minutes without a mic. Now, the amazing thing, people said that they could hear me anyway, so that's, <laughs> so that's amazing, but you know, if I lose my mic, just, you know, wave your hands or something, do something like, do the wave or something, so I, I know I've lost my mic, uh, but it's good to be here. It's, it's good to be in the, in the fellowship one more time, and today we're going to continue the preaching series out of 1 John, and so... This is, you know, the first time I've done a really in-depth study in 1 John. It's just amazing how relevant it is to, you know, what we're going through today. And, you know, I say it's amazing, but at the same time, it's not because, you know, all of God's Word is relevant. It was written a thousand, you know, thousands of years ago and still just as relevant today as it was, you know, thousands of years ago. And so today we're going to come out of uh, 1 John, the second chapter, last two verses, and then the uh, first three verses in the third chapter. Now, our message for today is just a a little, little bit rougher than perhaps uh, we may have heard in the past. I used to tell my church when I was a a senior pastor that it's a meat-eating time. And so, you know, a baby can't drink milk. I mean, a baby can't eat meat, but only the mature adults can eat meat. So sometimes we have to feed on a little meat in order for us to grow. And so I'm going to say it's meat-eating time just a little bit. Amen? Amen. All right. So today we're going to come out of, again, 1 John, the second chapter. And we're going to look at verses uh, 28 and 29, and then the first three verses of the third chapter. And it reads as follows. And now, little children, abide in him, that when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone that doeth righteousness is born of him. Heavenly Father, uh, again, Lord, I just thank you, Lord, for just uh, providing this opportunity, Lord, to share your holy and your precious word, Lord. The Apostle Paul said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. So, Lord, again, I just thank you, Lord, for this blessed opportunity to share your gospel. And I just ask right now, Lord, for the filling of your Holy Spirit upon me, Lord, for we know that uh, we can do absolutely nothing without you, but yet I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. So again, Lord, I just ask for that filling, that anointing of your Holy Spirit, and I ask and pray that the words that come forth from out of my mouth, that they would not be mine, Lord, but I ask and pray that they might be yours. For we are not here for former fashion, Lord. We are not here to glorify ourselves, but we are here simply to lift up your name, that wonderful, awesome, magnificent, and just precious name of our Lord and Savior Jesus, the Christ. So I ask right now, Lord Jesus, that you would strengthen me, Lord, that you would use me and help me to lift up your name. In Jesus Christ's precious and holy name we pray. Amen. Our message for this morning is entitled, To Be Like Jesus. To Be Like Jesus. Now, as Randy has shared with us over the past couple of weeks as we've gone through this uh, epistle, John was the sole remaining apostle who was still alive, and it's believed that he was in his 80s or perhaps even 90 years old when he wrote this first epistle. And therefore, he was the last one who had intimate eyewitness association with our Lord Jesus throughout his earthly ministry, death, resurrection, and ascension. And so now it had been approximately six decades since he had physically walked with the Lord. And during those 60 years, during that 60-year time span, he had gone through severe persecution. He had been in prison numerous times. He was thrown into boiling hot oil to die, and yet somehow he survived. His brother James had been martyred many years ago. All of the other apostles had also been martyred. And yet all these many years had not dampened his zeal for the Lord. Just as we might give words of wisdom to our children before they move on. That's what my father did. He had, he had cancer and was given six months to live. And so he gave, he wrote my sister and I some words of wisdom before he passed on. This is what John did in this epistle. And what I love about John is that there is no sugar coating. There's no compromise. There's no wishy-washiness when it comes to what he had to say. But everything was pretty much black or white when it comes to where we are in our walk with the Lord. And in these days and times, the exact same thing is needed. Today, we want to make sure that we don't offend anyone. We want to make sure that we're politically correct. We want to make sure that no one's feelings are hurt. But that was not John. Now, don't get me wrong. John had a love for the people. He had the love for the saints, which was why in this epistle he often referred to the saints as little children. For that was a term of endearment which reflected his love, his care and his concern for the saints. But in his love, and perhaps more importantly, because of his love, John also spoke the truth. For he was like Paul who said that we are to speak the truth in love. And that's what John did in this epistle. For he spoke the word of God with boldness, and he made it clear that we are either walking in light or we are walking in darkness. We are practicing love or we are practicing hatred. We are walking in truth or we are walking in error. We are walking in righteousness or we are walking in sin. We have the love of the Father or we have the love of the world. And we are children of God or we are children of the devil. There is no in-between. And an additional truth that John lifts up in our text today is that Jesus Christ is coming back. Amen? Amen? He's coming back. And because he's coming back, it is imperative that we, each and every one of us, in the church, online, Midlothian, it is imperative that each and every one of us know where we stand In our relationship with the Lord for all of us will one day have to stand before him. First of all, those who don't know Christ eventually will have to stand before him at the great white throne judgment where they will be judged for their works. And there they will find that their works do not meet God's standard of perfection. Therefore, they will be cast into the lake of fire. They will burn forever and ever And forever be separated from God. That's not something we often want to hear today, but that is the truth. But for those of us who do know Christ, did you know that we will also have to stand before him when he comes back? But thanks be to God, we will not stand before him at the great white throne judgment, but we will have to stand before him at the judgment seat of Christ. How many people have heard of the judgment seat of Christ? Anybody? maybe half, maybe a little over half, heard about the judgment seat of Christ. So in the 14th chapter of Romans, start with verse 10, it says, and this is talking about believers. This is only believers. But why dost thou judge thy brother? Or why dost thou set it not thy brother? In other words, look down on thy brother. For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God, So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. Now, at this judgment, thanks be to God, we will not be judged for our sins. For our sins, past, present, and future have already been judged at the cross. However, we will be judged for our faithfulness. And here at the judgment seat of Christ, we will either receive eternal rewards or lose our eternal rewards based on our faithfulness or lack of faithfulness to him. Therefore, no matter who we are, the life that we live today has eternal consequences. Amen? Eternal consequences, the life that we live today. And we will all have to give account of ourselves to God. And John realized this, which was why John says, it is imperative that we show who we are in Christ by the life that we live. And that's why every single one of us should have a desire to be like Jesus. Amen? Now, as we look at our text, we see several ways in which we should desire to be like Jesus in light of his imminent return. And so today, we want to briefly take a look at a few of these ways. First, let's look at 1 John 2.28, that 28th verse again. 1 John 2.28. There it reads, And now, little children, abide in him, that when he shall appear we may have confidence or boldness and not be ashamed before him at his coming. So the first thing we see is that to be like Jesus, we need to abide in Christ. We need to abide in Christ. Now in the second chapter of First John, John used the word abide over and over again, which should give us an indication of its great importance. For those of you who may have seen Ronnie and Josh's teaching video on this chapter, they lifted up seven ways in which John says we are to abide. Verse 6, it says, if we abide in Christ, we should walk as he walked. Verse 10, if we love our brother, we abide in the light. Verse 14, if the words abide in us, we will be spiritually strong. Verse 19, false teachers do not abide in the fellowship." Verse 24, the word we have had should, should, heard should abide in us. Verse 27, the anointing or the Holy Spirit abides in us and we abide in the Spirit. And then verse 28, as we abide in the word and the Spirit, we abide in Christ. Now, an additional benefit of abiding that's stated in our text is if we abide in Christ, we will anticipate his return with confidence or boldness, And we will not be ashamed before him at his coming. And that right there should tell us how important it is to abide in Christ. Because I don't know about you, but I don't want to be ashamed before him when he returns. Have you ever seen a dog that can't even look at you when they know they've done something wrong? How many of you had dogs? How many people have dogs? A lot of people have dogs, right? You know a dog. If a dog does something wrong, you don't even have to know what they did. Just the way they look. They can't even look at you, and you know they've done something wrong. Well, sad to say, that might be some of us when we stand before the Lord. Amen? Amen. Amen. Because we know we didn't live the life that we were supposed to, and we were not abiding in him. Our Lord Jesus revealed the importance of abiding in him in the 15th chapter of John when he said, Abide in me. And I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself except it abide in the vine, no more can ye except ye abide in me. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit, for without me ye can do nothing. And what does it mean to abide? Well, Randy told us last week it means to remain faithful, to stay rooted, And if you think about the physical picture of a branch and a vine, in order for that branch to bear fruit, it must stay attached to the vine. For if that branch is ever severed from the vine, it would become dry. It would become useless. It would be impossible for it to bear fruit. Well, the same thing is true for us spiritually. To abide in Christ simply means just like the branches and the vine, we have become one with him. We have submitted ourselves to him. We have fully surrendered ourselves to the will of the Lord. And therefore, we are either abiding in him, and then we will have confidence or boldness at his coming, or we are not abiding in him, and we will be ashamed before him at his coming. And the Lord taught us the importance of this throughout the scriptures. For example, one way in which he vividly showed us What abiding in Christ does not look like is when David returned the ark of God to Israel in the sixth chapter of 2 Samuel. For there, David had to learn the hard way that we have to do things God's way to ensure that we're abiding in him. So let's go to 2 Samuel, sixth chapter. It's about the uh, 10th book of the Old Testament after 1 Samuel, Joshua, Judges, and Ruth. And before, if you see Kings and Chronicles, you've gone too far. Second Samuel, the 6th chapter, and we're going to read the first seven verses. And there it reads, And David gathered together all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people that were with him from Baal of Judah to bring up from thence the ark of God, whose name is called by the Lord of hosts that dwelleth between the cherubims. And they set the ark of God upon a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab that was in Gibeah. And Uzzah and Ohio, the sons of Abinadab, drove the new cart. And they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was at Gibeah, accompanying the ark of God, and Ohio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel played before the Lord, And all manner of instruments made of fir wood, even on harps and on psalteries and on timbrels and on cornets and on cymbals. And when they came to Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah put forth his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen shook it. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God smote him there for his error, and there he died by the ark of God. Difficult story to read or to hear, but many important lessons that we can learn here. Now, first of all, if we take a closer look at this ark, in the third verse, it says, when the Philistines returned the ark of God to Israel after being plagued by God, they set the ark of God upon a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab that was in Gibeah. And Uzza and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, drove the new cart. Now the Ark of God was kept in the tabernacle, and it represented the presence of God. But about a hundred years earlier, the Ark had been captured by the Philistines. But because the Ark truly belonged to Israel, God afflicted the Philistines with painful tumors, such that the Philistines were now gladly ready to return the Ark of God back to Israel. Therefore, when David finally had the opportunity, remember, it had been gone for almost hundred years, But now David finally had the opportunity to bring the Ark of God back to Israel. He was excited. He was delighted. And he basically led a parade of at least 30,000 men to celebrate the return of the Ark. However, even though David was sincerely trying to honor the Lord, the great mistake David made was putting the Ark on a new cart. For by doing so, he was trying to bear fruit in his own way. For the Lord had given specific instructions on how the ark of God was to be moved. The word of God says it had to be covered. That two rods were to be inserted in rings located in the four corners of the ark. And then the ark could only be carried on the shoulders of the priests, And no one else could touch the ark. However, When the Philistines had the ark, they were ignorant of God's word. Therefore, their religious leaders did what they thought was best. And they placed the ark of God on a new cart when they returned it to Israel. This new cart probably looked good. This new cart probably moved good. This new cart may have even smelled good. There was nothing on the outside to indicate there was anything wrong with this cart. However, the problem was putting the ark of God on a cart was not the way of the Lord. And David should have known this. For the way the ark was to be moved was clearly revealed in God's word. However, David made the same mistake many of us make, in that he didn't go to God's word. He didn't consult the Lord. He didn't go to the Lord in prayer, but he got a consensus from all of those around him. But because they were also ignorant of God's word, and the new cart looked good to them, they just decided to copy the way of the religious leaders from Philistine and move the ark on a new cart just as had been done before. But as a result, the sixth verse says, When they came to Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah put forth his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen shook it. In other words, As the oxen were moving the ark on a new cart, they stumbled, and the ark began to fall off the cart. And even though this may have seemed like an accident, we know that there are no accidents with God. Therefore, the fact that the oxen stumbled, the the fact that they stumbled was, was, was indicative of the fact that there was a confusion that David created because he was outside of the will of the Lord. And did you know the same thing could happen to us? Many times, just like these oxen, we stumble and create confusion in our home. We stumble and create confusion in our marriage. We stumble and create confusion in our lives. We stumble and create confusion in our church. And that's because, just like David, we are outside the will of the Lord. And then, when the oxen stumbled, Uzzah put forth his hand, to the ark of God and took hold of it for the oxen shook it and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah and God smote him there for his error and there he died by the ark of God difficult story to hear but again many important lessons to learn didn't matter that David was king of Israel Didn't matter that Uzzah was just trying to prevent the ark from falling. Didn't matter that David was called a man after God's own heart. These men had disobeyed God's word, and therefore, they had to pay the consequences. And again, church, this is a lesson for us. Even in this dispensation of grace, our services to God must be something we take seriously. Amen? I'm going to say it again. Even in this dispensation of grace, our services to God must be something we take seriously. Even in the New Testament, the scripture says, Hebrews 12, 29, that our God is a consuming fire. Even in the New Testament, Paul said, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Our Lord Jesus said, Fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather kill him, which is able to destroy both soul, or rather fear him, which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Sadly, so many times, instead of digging into God's word, instead of consulting the Lord, we want to just copy the ways of the world around us and just do what everyone else is doing. That's why something, as long as to go to church. As long as we draw people in, as long as we get results, doesn't matter about my Christian walk. I must be okay with God. But what we learn from this incident is, just like David, if we are not abiding in Christ, if we have not submitted ourselves to the Lord, then we are not truly bearing fruit for the glory of God, and we will be ashamed before him at his coming. As John tells us, abiding in Christ is Christ-like character. Abiding in Christ is obedience to his word. Abiding in Christ is love for the brethren. Abiding in Christ is fellowship with the Lord. This is how we have boldness before him at his coming. And it's not just on Sunday, not just on Wednesday evening, but it's Monday through Sunday and every day of the week. Abiding in Christ is 24 hours a day, seven days a week, every day, Every hour, every minute, every second, it occurs by by moment-by-moment submission to the Lord. That's what abiding in Christ is. Abiding in Christ is the way we walk. Abiding in Christ is the way we talk. Abiding in Christ is the way we love one another. Abiding in Christ is the way we treat one another. Uh, That's why we must submit ourselves and abide in Jesus Christ. If we truly want to be like Jesus. Amen? Amen? Got to abide in Christ if we truly want to be like Jesus. All right, let's go to 1 John. Go back to 1 John, the second chapter, and let's look at verse 29. 1 John 2 29. And there it reads If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone that doeth righteousness is born of him. If you know that he is righteous, you know, and we, by the way, we do know that he's righteous. You know that everyone that doeth righteousness is born of him. So to be like Jesus, we must abide in Christ. Also, what we see is to be like Jesus, we must practice righteousness like Christ. Practice righteousness like Christ. Because we know, as it says in this verse, because we know that the Son of God is righteous, our text tells us his children will also practice righteousness. For the good news is when we are born of God, for the first time in our lives, we now have power over sin. Do you realize that? If you are a child of God, you have power over sin. Paul said in Romans six eighteen, being then made free from sin, ye became the servants or the slaves of righteousness. Once we are born of God, we receive a brand new nature, and we are now servants of righteousness because God has freed us from the power of sin. Outside of Christ, we were enslaved to sin. We were burdened with sin. There was nothing we could do but sin. But now, thanks be to God, if you are a child of God, God has freed us from the power of sin. Now, that doesn't mean we're sinless. John said earlier in this epistle, 1 John 1, 1.8, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. As long as we're in this fleshly body, we will still sometimes struggle and battle against sin. How many of you know that? Everyone should raise your hand on that one, amen? <laughs> Everyone should raise your hand. But sin will not rule over the child of God. Because we've been given a brand new righteous nature in Jesus Christ. And therefore, the scriptures tell us, because of who we are in Christ, we should now live our lives accordingly. Romans 6, 4 says, As Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should also walk in newness of life. And that's what we need to rest in, amen? That we've been given this brand new Righteous nature in Jesus Christ, and therefore, we can rest in him. People generally believe that our righteous conduct is what makes us righteous. But the reality is, God is the one who makes us righteous. And now, because we are already righteous, we are to live holy lives for the glory of him. 1 Corinthians 6.20 says, For ye are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. In other words, because we are servants of righteousness, the Holy Spirit has already turned us from darkness to light, from unbelief to faith, from sin to holiness. Because we are servants of righteousness, we have undergone a complete transformation, and we are now brand new creations. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Some people think I could be a Christian and not experience a changed life. But what we see in our text, John says this is impossible. For God has before ordained that his children will walk holy before him and will practice righteousness. And this is because the Holy Spirit has transformed us, and this has got to show up in the child of God's life. Before we were saved, we were slaves to sin, and there was absolutely no good thing we could do that could please God. But after we're saved, we're saved. Thanks be to God, we are now slaves of righteousness. And a total change of nature has now taken place. And that's why the scriptures teach only those who have been changed and made holy can now walk with Jesus Christ and inherit the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians the sixth 6, verse 9 says, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived. Neither fornicators, that's sex outside marriage, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, that's homosexuality, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, that's those who put down others, nor extortioners, shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. In other words, that was us at one time. That was me at one time. We all once lived in sin. But now ye are washed. Now ye are sanctified. Now you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. As children of God, church, we have been given a brand new righteous nature. Amen? A brand new righteous nature. And that has got to show up in the child of God's life. And that's one of the signs that we truly desire to be like Jesus. Amen? Child of God's going to practice righteousness because we truly desire to be like Jesus. All right, let's wrap it up now. Let's go to 1 John, the third chapter. And we're going to look at the first three verses there. 1 John, third chapter, first three verses. There it reads, Behold, So we saw to be in Christ, to be like Jesus, we must abide in Christ. To be like Jesus, we must practice righteousness like Christ. And last but not least, to be like Jesus, we must place our hope in Christ. We must place our hope in Christ. Now, John told us in the previous verse that the sanctifying work of Christ gives us as believers two wonderful blessings. First of all, it gives us a right standing before God. And then secondly, what we see is that it enables us to live right for him. And now, in light of this, in the third chapter, John basically bursts out in praise. First of all, in the first verse, he speaks of God's great love for us. Remind, and then in verses 2 and 3, he reminds us that when Christ comes back, we will be like him. And having this hope purify, purifies us, purifies us even as we he is pure. And church, this is what we need to rest on, that sanctifying work of Jesus Christ, and he's done everything that we need to do. Now, because of what Christ has done for us, you know, we have this hope that the world doesn't have. Now, what does this hope mean? Well, Webster's definition of hope is a wish or a desire accompanied by expectation of its fulfillment. In other words, the world's definition of hope is, you know, I just hope that this happens but you're really not sure about it but christian hope is more than that christian hope is not just a wish it's not just a desire but it's assurance that all that god has revealed to us shall come to pass and that's what enables us to hold on no matter how difficult the battle may get david said in psalms 31:24, be of good courage and he shall strengthen your heart all ye that hope in the lord And to key to having this hope is realize that Jesus Christ is coming back. Titus 2.13 says that we should be looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And if we look closely at his word, we should know beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus Christ is coming back. For instance, one verse out of every 30 in the New Testament refers to Christ's second coming. Paul referred to baptism 13 times in his epistles, but the Lord's return 50 times. We place a lot of emphasis on Christmas, but did you know that there are 20 times more prophecies in the Old Testament about his second coming than on his first coming? There's so many ways in which he's revealed in his word that he is coming back. And having this hope will make a difference in our daily walk. For when you realize that our hope is in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We also realize that our hope cannot fall. Our hope cannot fail. Our hope cannot falter. And our salvation is secure because it's all dependent upon him. This hope is not dependent on our feelings, circumstances, or abilities, but it's solely dependent on the power of Jesus Christ. That's why in Hebrews 6.19, Our hope is described as an anchor of the soul. And I love that description. Think about what an anchor is used for. It's used to secure the ship, particularly during a storm, to keep it from drifting. It's invisible. Can't see it because it sinks deep down beneath the waters, and yet it firmly grips the ground below. Well, in the same way, Jesus Christ is our anchor. First, He's invisible to those on the outside. Those in the world don't know what we've got on the inside. But even though he might be invisible to the world, if you've got Jesus deep down on the inside, he will keep you steadfast and unmovable, no matter what's going on in your life. And that's why no matter what the situation may be, don't give up. For it's during the storms of life that we have an anchor of hope in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. This hope is a hope that knows that my Lord will never leave us nor forsake us. This hope is a hope that knows that same God who was with me every step in the way in the past will be with me in the trials to come. This hope is a hope that dwells deep down inside when God tells you, you are my child and everything is going to be all right. This hope rests in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and is fully persuaded, fully confident, fully convinced Fully assured that all God has promised us, he's also able to perform. Because it's been so long since Jesus Christ first came, so many times we get comfortable. We get complacent. We live as if this is our home. But John wants us to know if our hope is in Christ, we must stand out as bright shining lights in a dark dreary world. For our walk should be different. Our talk should be different. Our minds should be different. Our lives should be different. For one day, we know our hope will be fulfilled and everything is going to be all right. And how do we know that? Because Jesus Christ is coming back. Look at the 19th chapter of Revelation. For there in his word, it says he is coming back. Starting with verse 11, it says, And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire. That's eyes that can look right through to the hearts of men. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. That blood, 63rd chapter of Isaiah, that blood is the blood of his enemies. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven, that's us, church. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he shall smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, church, King of kings and Lord of lords. Amen. Jesus Christ is coming back, church, as King of kings and Lord of lords. And that's why we should all truly desire to be like Jesus. Amen? Amen. Truly desire to be like Jesus. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you are such an awesome and wonderful God, Lord. And I thank you that Jesus Christ is coming back. I pray, Lord, as we reflect on what we've heard, Lord, that we would have boldness, have confidence at your coming, Lord, and not be ashamed before you, Lord. I pray, Lord, that we will abide in you, Lord that we will practice righteousness in you, Lord, that we will place our hope in you, Lord, knowing that you are the almighty God, Lord, and you have all power in your hands. If there's anyone who does not know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, and if they want to know what it means to be saved, Lord, I just pray that right now that they are convicted, Lord, and that the word would go forth letting them know that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Lord, I just ask right now, Lord, just for the filling, the anointing of your Holy Spirit, Lord, upon each and every one of us, Lord. And I just pray that we would have that desire to be like Jesus. In Jesus Christ's precious and holy name we pray, amen.